Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. Please also consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to our next topic. All right, we are recording. Cool, guys. All right, guys, we got Paul, Dr. Paul Saladino. Hopefully I said that right, Paul. You got it, man. <laughs> nice Italian style name. But uh, uh-huh. hey, I met you, uh, you know, it was about two weeks ago over here locally, and we had this big old get down meat fest and, and had some good conversation. But it was awesome. We, we wanted to talk a little bit about because um, your 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 training is in psychiatry. And I know you yes. have functional medicine or uh, integrative medicine, uh, no functional medicine, sort of. Uh, I think it's all kind of, you know, all those words. You know, right. all integrative, functional, holistic, it all kind of rolls together. I don't think right. it's, you know, let's put some lifestyle in there. So, hey, so let's let's get a quick little bit about your background and then let's get into some of the some of the fun stuff. OK. All right. Yeah. So it's great to be here. Good to meet you, Zach. We've never met. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. it was great to meet you, Sean, at the at the meetup. You're you're even larger in real life than we all imagine you. So it's like this, this incredibly large carnivore. Um, but uh, yeah, so I am, uh, I'm in psychiatry. I did my medical school at the University of Arizona. Um, and I got an MD. So I'm a classically trained physician. And I'm at the University of Arizona, right? I'm at the University of Washington right now, finishing my psychiatry residency. In my last year, I'll be done next year in June. It's a four-year process. So, hey, let me, Paul. Let me interrupt you. I'll tell you a funny story. So when I was in when I was in medical school, but what was it, twenty years ago, or whatever it was, and I was doing my uh, my interviewing for for an orthopedic surgery, and I was married at the time, and my my wife at the time was going going to do internal medicine, so we had to do a a couples match, which is hard because you right. got to, you know, you got to match up both things and, and orthopedics is, is, you know, relatively challenging, but I was in there and I went to U of A and I, I mean, this is how stupid I was, but I went there and we flew out there and, you know, you have your nice interview suit and stuff like that. And we were like, I got up in the morning from the hotel room and I realized I didn't have any pants. I forgot to pack my suit pants. <laughs> <laughs> so no damn pants. So I ended up, we ended up just saying, ah, we don't really want to go here anyway. So we just went to eat breakfast and skip the interview. <laughs> I ended up doing my residency down in Texas, but I mean, it was just it wow. was better to remember that. But you know, I like, I like, you know, Tucson's a nice place. I mean, yeah, it's, it's it was nice interesting. City. I, uh, anyway, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go back, go back. No, yeah, but, you know, I was, pants. I was working. Uh, I, I, I did bring my pants to my, uh, to my medical school <laughs> interview. So I went to medical school there. And I was actually working in Flagstaff, uh, Arizona, prior to that as a PA. So uh, one of the things that's interesting about my background is that I took the long way around to medicine. I was a vagabond for many years after college. I studied chemistry in college. And then I got kind of burned out and was a ski bum for six years and traveled and did all kinds of stuff. And then eventually decided to go back to school, went to PA school and worked in cardiology as a PA for four years. So I have a real interest in lipids that predates my medical school career and my um, psychiatry residency. But eventually I went back to medical school at the University of Arizona. And the reason that I did that was primarily because what I saw as a PA was a medical model that I didn't get super excited about. I saw a lot of treatment of disease at a symptom level with medications and amelioration of symptoms without a whole lot of focus on the root cause of the illness. And that was why functional medicine appealed to me so much. And I realized 
that I had to go back to medical school to do that. And um, so I went back to the University of Arizona. And the nice thing about that place was that Andrew Weil is there. Integrative medicine is sort of a movement there. So people tended to think with an integrative perspective there. And I was able to kind of talk to those guys, conversations with him and other folks in the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona, and then came up to Seattle for residency almost four years ago in psychiatry because the way that human behavior shapes what we do is really interesting. The narrative quality, the human side of psychiatry is interesting. And, you know, frankly, the, the, the biological paradigm in psychiatry is evolving so rapidly. It's just fascinating as we're beginning to understand the way the gut and the brain are connected. It's a, it's a really exploding field. Uh, at my residency interview here, actually in the office next door to where I am right now, I told the residency director when I was interviewing for residency that uh, fecal transplants would be used to treat depression. And I think she kind of looked at me funny, but I got into residency here. So maybe she thought that had some merit. So, so here I am. And uh, yeah, there's all kinds of cool stuff happening in psychiatry today and connections with autoimmunity, all kinds of stuff we'll talk about. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think it's, you know, and I, I share a similar background in that I had a kind of a, I started medical school, I quit medical school, dropped out to go play rugby in New Zealand, and then screwed around, went in the Air Force, launched nuclear bombs for a number of years, and then decided when I got tired of getting my head kicked in on the rugby field, I went back to school. And it was kind of funny, I remember when I, I remember when I, when I shook the, the residency director's hand where I ended up getting accepted, I had a bunch of calluses on my hand and the guy was like, wow, I like those calluses on your hand, man. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the silly things that, you know, maybe she remembers your fecal con fecal uh, transplant con uh, you know, comment. And that's, and that's the thing that puts you in your mind. But the guy remembered I had big, big calloused hands and he thought it was cool. So maybe that's why. <laughs> let's get, let's get into some of this stuff. Cause I do think there is a lot of stuff that's, that's out there that we are just scratching the surface on, but, Let's talk a little bit about the link between the, the already well-known links that, that, that go with gut health and mental disorders. Yeah, so this is, um, this is quite a rabbit hole, and it's hard to know where to start. Um, you know, there's, there's so many cool pieces to this equation. I think what I would do is just back up one step and just give paint people uh, a little bit of a perspective on the landscape in psychiatry as it is right now. So within psychiatry, we're treating things like depression and anxiety and um, obsessive compulsive, psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. And there are really two main modalities in, in mainstream psychiatry. There are pharmaceutical drugs, antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and selective or uh, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. There, so there are pharmaceutical drugs that we use and there is therapy. And what's interesting for me in psychiatry is that we don't have a lot of biological markers of psychiatric disease that are used in clinical practice. Some of the stuff that I hope we'll be able to talk about today is that there are these, there are these developing uh, biological markers for us to get a sense of what's actually going on in the brain, um, in the body systemically in terms of inflammation, but we don't use these as much as we should uh, clinically right now. So we're stuck with this, this disease process for this set of disease processes that's really different than much of what we do in the rest of medicine. You know, if you, somebody breaks a bone, you can go in with an MRI, a CT, an X-ray and look at the bone and see exactly what you're doing. But if somebody comes to me and says, I'm depressed, I have no way other than my, my history taking. It's a very qualitative measure. And I think this is a tricky thing in psychiatry because it leads to a lot of misdiagnosis and mistreatment. And so what I mean by that is that a lot of things in psychiatry, I think, have biological basis. And a lot of things have no, don't have a biological basis. And so 
I'll delineate with depression as an example. So I think when people say they're depressed, quote unquote, the way that we diagnose depression now is with a set of subjective criteria in what's called the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And these, the problem with the subjective criteria is that people can have all sorts of diseases that cause them to have these symptomatic um, criteria. And then we can say they have major depression. And that's a real problem without a biological marker for that because people get misdiagnosed. And I think you guys can probably see this in your own lives. You know, we see this is that people will have stressful events happen in their lives, the breakup of a relationship, a, um, uh, you know, a, a financial issue, and they become quote unquote depressed. And this is sort of like a depression that's related to stress. And this type of thing often gets treated with medications. And the problem with that is that the medications aren't gonna treat that type of depression because it's not necessarily a biological depression. That's a stress-related depression or a your life is difficult type of depression. And on the flip side, there are a lot of things that we try and do therapy for that are probably biologic in nature. Uh, there was a patient I can think of recently who had really, really bad obsessive compulsive disorder to the point that he was washing his hands six to seven hours a day. And you know, when I think of this patient, I think that is a brain on fire. That is, that is neuroinflammation, which we'll talk about. And that is a really hard thing to treat with therapy. So I think what's interesting about the future of psychiatry is that as we develop these biological markers, as we get a little better lens to look at illness, we'll be able to tell what sort of people we're dealing with who um, are going to benefit most from therapy or who are going to benefit most from a biological approach. And so the connections between the gut microbiome or the gut and the brain, this is squarely within the realm of biology. And it's probably a whole subset of depressive and other illnesses that are, I think, are inflammatory in nature. And so what we're getting um, is this connection between the gut and every other system in the body, not just the brain, but the brain is one of these neat um, organ systems that's kind of a final common pathway. And many things throughout the body can uh, manifest as disorders in the brain. So when we get disorders in the gut, whether it's dysbiosis, which is a fancy word that means the wrong type of bacteria in the gut, or inflammation in the gut, which I think we can try and clarify this term of leaky gut, which everybody talks about now, and I'd love to delve into. The idea is that those systemic, that those signals in the gut of inflammation can become systemic with cytokines and be elaborated to the brain causing neuroinflammation. So that's kind of a 15,000 foot overview. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, Paul, because I think like with a lot of the stuff now that we, we know enough where it's like we're starting to recognize that um, all these things are so interconnected between like just your general state of mind, your nutrition, your activity level and all that stuff. And we've we, we almost we could set ourselves up to failure, I guess, by ignoring that, I think, because we've specialized so so acutely in a lot of these fields. So, like, you know, someone has a stomach ache and we're like, OK, well, we better fix the stomach and totally or someone agree. has a headache. We better, you know you know, give them some ibuprofen or something like that. And it's like, it's like you were saying earlier, it, we're, we're attacking really vigorously all these symptoms, but we're not necessarily getting down to the root of the problem or taking more of a holistic approach. I think you're so right, Zach, this, this term, you know, um, the balkanization of medicine, there's this real schism in medicine, everybody's dividing medicine into these pies. And I think that, you know, and it's, you know, an endocrinologist and a um, a family practice doc and a rheumatologist and a GI doc and a cardiologist. And when I was in cardiology as a PA, the cardiologists I work with were great guys, but they literally told me on multiple occasions, 
think inside the hard box. That is your box, think there. Don't think outside the box, which, you know, I think as we've evolved in our understanding of medicine, you realize that's not a good model for patients, for people, because this is so interesting. We run into the same thing in psychiatry, and I think it really limits our ability to treat patients, is if, as physicians, if the root of the problem of the, of the organ that is experiencing the problem is not in the system that we are looking at, we can't imagine where else it could be or how we could find it. So for instance, in psychiatry, if we cannot find the root of a psychiatric illness in the brain, we, we sometimes get a little overwhelmed and think like, well, we don't know what's going on or the brain is too complex. But as you're suggesting, Zach, the roots of these illnesses are often outside of the system in which they manifest. You know, People have a thyroid issue like Hashimoto's thyroiditis or autoimmune issues in the thyroid. And we think like, okay, that's the issue. The body is generating an autoimmune reaction against the thyroid. And that's where we stop because we imagine that we've figured it out. But the root of that is not in the thyroid. The root of that is probably somewhere else. And that's really the edge of medicine that we're pushing now. And we need to refine this idea of um, all the systems as connected and stop seeing them as individual systems. And I think that um, in that way, we will be able to, to treat patients from a better perspective because a lot of these roots, um, you know, as Sean is suggesting, are in the gut, you know, and that's kind of the functional medicine idea is that if we look back and we try and trace a lot of these things back, a lot of it ends up in the gut. Well, I think um, just, just a couple comments. Uh, one, I know you talk about just differentiating between a truly biological cause of, of, of whatever mental health disorder, whether it be depression, anxiety, or so on and so forth, and then a environmental or a stress-related cause. And I would argue, and I think you would agree to at least to some degree, that those stressful events, loss of a loved one, divorce, loss of job, are going to have a biological ramification. You're yes. going to see that. Yes. You're going to see alterations probably in gut microbiota, in brain chemistry, and all those things. So I think there, there's somewhat of a relationship there. But, but when we do talk about chronic disease, you know, like say someone has chronic whatever you know whatever you know, pick your disease it's going to have a, it's going to have a biological effect it's going to have right. effect on all systems including the brain including the muscles and i do think that that is an important thing to recognize now we do have doctors that are called general practitioners that, that supposedly are doing all of these things the problem is you know that system is overloaded and overwhelmed right. by people and i don't think they have the time to you know do some of these things so i think it's a systemic problem it's not that there are people that uh, don't have a role in, in the overall system. It's just that I think this, you know, again, the system, you know, none of us are suffering from a drug deficiency. I mean, I would argue that same thing in psychiatry, you know, depression is not a lack of SSRIs. I mean, that's not the root cause of a depression. I think we can all agree on that. Um, the gut stuff is very interesting. And I think it's something that, you know, it's kind of the, it's kind of the latest, the newest kid on the block. It's kind of the new frontier. And we like to imagine that everything goes there. And, and I'm not, um, certainly I think is very important. I would say that, you know, we may find that there are other systems that are, you know, what we breathe in, our respiratory, so, you know, there, sure. there may be, yeah. you know, there may be a whole host of things that, that are interrelated. I'm sure they are that we're, you know, right now the focus is on the gut. And I think it's important. I think that's where diet comes into play, right. obviously, in a large way. But that, that's just some commentary. And so let's let's talk a little bit about um, how, how you feel the gut impacts health in general, but specifically how it might impact uh, the brain or the, or the uh, you know, the mental health. Yeah, you know, I totally agree with you, Sean. I think that uh, um, certainly in stress-related conditions, there can be some 
some biological effects with the cortisol and the HPA axis. I think that the tricky part for me, just, just in response to that, is that sometimes those type of things get treated with SSRIs, as we're saying. Well, I mean, maybe that's not the right thing, you know? Certainly, I think that the, there's overtreatment with the drugs. So I think that what, what is interesting to me about the changing paradigms around psychiatric illness is this idea that a lot of psychiatric illness is probably autoimmune in nature. And um, the spectrum of autoimmune disease right now is so large and it's expanding. And I think a lot of the diseases that we imagine now are actually probably autoimmune in nature. And we don't think about them that way. And so this is the way that the gut, um, I think, affects things in the body and affects things in the brain specifically. So if we break it down, I think there are three pieces to this um, equation that are, that are worthwhile going in there, three different rabbit holes, for instance. So the first piece, if we start at the brain and we work backwards, I think the first piece that, that we could talk about is the evidence that psychiatric diseases are autoimmune in nature. And the second piece is the evidence that stuff in the gut, like leaky gut or issues in the gut can cause autoimmunity or can cause inflammation. And then the third piece, which is something that we all probably find really interesting, is the evidence that plants or plant antigens or what is going on in the gut to cause leaky gut and cause these, these uh, openings of the gap junctions, the openings of the, um, the tight junctions in the gastrointestinal epithelium to trigger this immune system, which is right uh, near the gut um, lining in the lamina propria. So I think if we work backwards, um, is it right if I talk a little bit about the autoimmune basis of psychiatric disease? No, of course. I think it's very fascinating. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So this is, this is really interesting to me. Um, in the body, we may have to do a short primer here. I don't want to get too technical for people, but in the body, there are, there are really two branches to the immune system. There's the innate and the adaptive immune system. And the adaptive immune system is T cells and B cells and macrophages, which respond to infections. And the innate immune system is kind of the, the dendritic cells and the cells that are on uh, all the time kind of surveying the landscape. And in the brain, there's a type of cell called a microglial cell, which is a brain-derived macrophage. And macrophages are involved in many, many autoimmune processes. We see macrophages involved in uh, atherosclerosis, for instance. But in the brain, these microglial cells have two phenotypes or two sort of external appearances called the M1 and the M2 phenotypes. And they can switch from being turned off to turned on. And what we see in depression and um, other psychiatric illness is that there's a, a higher proportion of these macrophages that are getting turned on in the brain. The microglial cells are activated. So there, there's tons of evidence that there's microglial cell activation in the brain. They go from the M1 to the M2 phenotype in depressed patients and patients who have uh, suicidal ideation and in postmortem studies of patients who have unfortunately completed suicides. And so this is a fascinating idea that there is an immunologic process going on in the brain of probably many psychiatric disorders like this patient I was describing with obsessive compulsive disorder. This is the brain on fire. This is the immune system in the brain, the microglial cells sort of getting turned on in a reactive um, milieu, a reactive environment and saying, we are turned on by cytokines and we are reacting against the brain itself. And the target for these microglial cells seems to be glutamate and glutamatergic transmission. So in the brain, there are many different cell types. There are glial cells, which are support cells, there are astrocytes, and there are neurons, and there are microglial cells. 
So the neurons, as we know, are going to elaborate these neurotransmitters, and there are multiple neurotransmitters. This is probably the thing most people are familiar with with depression is there's a serotonin, there's dopamine, there's norepinephrine, there's acetylcholine, there's glutamate, there's glycine, there's dopamine. So there's lots of different neurotransmitters. And glutamate is a really interesting neurotransmitter in the system because a lot of the therapies that we are developing in psychiatry now seem to touch glutamate in some way. Um, and so things like ketamine, for instance, people might have heard of. Ketamine has been shown to be very effective in treating depression for a short amount of time. But then it, the effect kind of wears off. And one of the things that ketamine does is ketamine blocks uh, NMDA and upregulates AMPA glutamate receptors. So there are two or three different types of glutamate receptors. There's AMPA, NMDA, and kinate. And we know that ketamine is touching these NMDA receptors and blocking them. So it seems that drugs which block glutamatergic transmission in the brain seem to attenuate depressive processes. And this is consistent with the microglial theory. Again, I don't want to get too technical, but these activated immune cells are probably interfering with glutamatergic transmission or creating too much transmission of this glutamate neurotransmitter in the brain. And that is leading to you know, at a broad level, some sort of inflammatory phenotype in the brain. As an aside, I'll also mention that there are a number of really cool things happening now in psychiatry that also target um, glutamate. So I know, Sean, you'd posted an article a few months ago. I saw this one too about uh, acetyl-L-carnitine in depression. And um, what they found with acetyl-L-carnitine is that in humans with depression, there's a relationship that lower levels of acetyl-L-carnitine are found in the brains of humans with depression. And that is connected uh, in regression models such that the patients with the worst depression have the lowest levels of acetyl-L-carnitine. So even the treatment resistant patients have lower levels of acetyl-L-carnitine. What's interesting is that one of the roles of acetyl-L-carnitine in the brain is to modulate glutamate transmission as well. So that when we supplement with uh, acetyl-L-carnitine, we get lowered levels of glutamatergic transmission in the brain. So that's the potential mechanism there that connects it all, right? And then what do we know about carnitine? Well, it's very prevalent in meat. So if you're not eating a lot of meat, you're not gonna get much carnitine. There's really no carnitine in plant foods. And there are other deeper models which suggest that maybe early childhood stress, post-traumatic stress disorder may have some mechanism, at least in animals, what they see with chronic stress models is that animals who are exposed to repeated, repeated de defeat stress have lower levels of acetyl-L-carnitine. So maybe these early life stressors create epigenetic changes, which are leading to lower levels of acetyl-L-carnitine, and there's something going on with the glutamate system. So let me, let, me just inter let me just interject, because just, just to be fair, that we do manufacture our own carnitine uh, endogenously, and it's, but we do see that when we look at populations that are meat eaters versus non-meat eaters, there still is a difference. So it's not like you get none it is an endogenously produced substance, you know, at least carnitine in the human. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, certainly eating more meat does upregulate that break, that level. Yeah, and there are there are a number of studies now showing that supplementation with it, either with lots of red meat, and the redder the meat, the more carnitine that's in the meat. Uh, the uh, when you supplement with it, you know, you can have some improvements in depressive uh, depressive symptoms, which is quite an interesting thing, and it probably all revolves around the glutamate. So if we work back a step, we have the microglial cells, these immune cells in the brain, these are activated. And how do they get activated? Well, the way the immune system works is it sends signals between cells in the immune system. These are called cytokines. And there's also research. So there's, there's research to show that microglial cells are activated in the brains of depressed people, anxious people, OCD, many of the very severe depression, uh, many of the very severe psychiatric diseases. And then there's also evidence that shows that these inflammatory, quote unquote, cytokines 
specifically interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha are elevated in the serum and in the CSF of patients with depression, anxiety, and some of these bad psychiatric illnesses. So this is interesting too, because we can take it back another step and say, okay, why are the microglia getting activated? And the microglia are probably getting activated because there are immunologic signals, the IL-6, the TNF-alpha, which are telling them to get activated. That's the way that that's the way the brain works. That's the way that the cytokines are signaling in the brain. And so this is super interesting and in saying, where are these cytokine signals coming from? Why is the body having this inflammatory reaction? And that's, I think, where we, we look outside of the brain. This goes back to kind of what Zach was saying, that it's probably not within the brain. I mean, sometimes we can have intracerebral infections, but I think that in this case, it benefits us to look outside of the organ system where the symptoms are manifest and we're looking outside of the brain for these cytokines. We know that many of these cytokines can cross the blood-brain barrier. And so the elaboration of these cytokines in the periphery is probably what's causing this in the brain. And this is where we get to other places in the body that this inflammation could be coming from. And at this point, I think it's, I, one of the things I was hoping to do when we were talking was just to define inflammation for people, because I think this is a term that gets thrown around a lot. And, uh, you know, I think that, that it's misunderstood in the, in the general medical uh, literature and in the lay press. You know, I was doing a lecture here at one of the teaching hospitals and I asked the audience, what is inflammation? And you know, none of the medical students, none of the attendings could really give me a good explanation. And I think it's just, it's something we hear all the time. You know, we hear atherosclerosis is connected with inflammation. We hear depression is connected with inflammation, or there's a lot of evidence to suggest that depression is connected with inflammation. But I just want to make sure that listeners are aware that inflammation um, I, I think that the best explanation of inflammation is as it's this cytokine messaging that's happening in the body. Inflammation is immune activation. Um, it's the immune cells getting tipped from a uh, reactive phenotype to a non-reactive phenotype or vice versa. Within the immune system, there are cells that generally are um, non-reactive and are involved in sort of dampening down an inflammatory phenotype. And there are cells that respond and go up when there are inflammatory signals happening. And so there are two populations or essentially two populations in the, in the human body where the, the immune cells are tipping back and forth. And so when the inflammatory cells are being activated by cytokines in the body, when, when there's this, this um, attitude within the body that, that there's some invader or there's some problem, that's what I would consider to be inflammation. Do you think that's, would you, would you agree with that, Sean? Well, I think and this is something, and I think there's a funny Malcolm Kendrick who talks about this as well, but I think we have to understand that inflammation is a response right. to something. And I think it's not necessarily always bad. I mean, sometimes inflammation is, is, is an, appropriate, uh, an appropriate response. And so we have to, we have to you know, kind of look at the difference between chronic inflammation response to a chronic irritant, stressor, you know, uh, immunological uh, reactant or whatever. I think so. You know, I think I think we have to look at well, what's causing the response exactly. is more important. So, what is the damaging agent or you know thing that's going on that's causing this inflammation? It's not that the inflammation itself is necessarily the negative thing. It's, totally it's there's some underlying damage that's occurring, and, and, and it's our body's response to it because we totally we have these cytokines for a reason. The yes. same reason we have cholesterol. The same reason we yes. have white blood cells, and, and and you know, the same reason we have lysosomes. These are there. The body has these things in preparation to deal with things. And so the question is, what are you dealing with that's causing this? And is this something we need to uh, try to try to fix ourselves from? Totally agree. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really great point that we would be dead without inflammation. And, you know, evolutionarily, we know that inflammation is what protects us from pathogens. Like you're saying, an you know, inflammation is is a 
is a very valuable process for us. It's how the immune system communicates. It's the immune system's cellular network. It, they need to tell each other when there's a dangerous signal. And this is actually, as an aside, one of the things that drives me bonkers about the, the multi-billion dollar anti-inflammatory industry of these <laughs> compounds like curcumin. And I mean, you, I mean, just look on Instagram every day, there's another anti-inflammatory agent and you should just be pumping your body full of these. And as you're saying, Sean, whether it's curcumin or sephoraphane or any of these compounds, like any of the, you know, uh, polyphenolic compounds, which we can talk about in general, that's a whole nother issue. It, you know, to say that they're anti-inflammatory is, is, is a misunderstanding on multiple fronts. Um, but your point is really well taken, Sean, that why are we trying to get rid of inflammation without knowing what the cause is? I just think it's silly and misguided to be drinking gallons of turmeric tea every day. You know, in some situations that inflammation is good for you. We know that after exercise, whether it's you, Sean, lifting or, or you, Zach, running or me doing, you know, whatever I do, I do martial arts and stuff, you know, like the inflammation after exercise is what gives our body the signal to grow. And we know that when we take compounds that abrogate that, whether it's vitamins T or anti-inflammatories after exercise, we will not get as much of an adaptive response. So taking anti-inflammatories or things like that after you have a hard workout or you row or you do kettlebells or you do whatever, like that is going to, that is really going to attenuate your body's response to that. So that is positive inflammation. That's inflammation. That's a good thing. And in, as you're saying, Sean, in chronic inflammation, that is inflammation that's a bad thing, but it's still valuable to us because it's inflammation that is giving us a signal that is telling us that something is wrong. And this is where the functional medicine model or the paradigm is so interesting. We have to keep asking the questions, where is this inflammation coming from? Why are we having this inflammation in our bodies? And that is what we really want to get to, right? Like, where is this coming from and how do we correct it? So it just this, yeah, this I, every time somebody says like, this is anti-inflammatory, you know, cranberries are anti-inflammatory. I just, a little part of me dies. It's completely missing the point. And as you're saying, you know, like inflammation is useful, except when it's signaling that something is wrong and we need to correct the cause. So we yeah, can talk about the Paul, as someone who is, I mean, I've prescribed literally thousands of anti-inflammatories in my career. And, and now I look back at that and said, you know, the question I should have been asking, we had David Ludwig on the other, not, not, no, we had, we had, not David Ludwig, we had, Dr. Unwin on the other day talking about, uh, you know, why don't we ask why? And, and that's the question is, well, why am I inflamed in the first place? That's great. And because we failed to do that. Let's, Zach, how are we doing on time on for time. this? We're, we're actually good. They gave us a bonus unlimited, I guess. They're just tempting us to purchase this product. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. So I just got a so sign saying that we can keep going. So. Okay. So for you guys that are listening, don't know, we're testing out a new audio uh uh, sound uh, production. So hopefully we'll get a little better audio here, but let's get back to, um, so we're asking why. So let's right. talk about some exactly. of the things that are potential inflammatory uh, promoters. What are we doing yeah. environmentally, either diet, environment, lifestyle decisions that, that you think are leading to some of these inflammatory issues that might, again, yeah. lead to leaky gut and this the is the, issues. Yeah, this is the million dollar question. And I think this is the question that I hope that we will continue to ask in medicine because I think that by asking this question, we will, we will gradually approach the roots of chronic illness. And so I think that, you know, one of, one of, the, one of the areas, and this is the part that, that we're getting back to the good stuff, the gut, I think is a really big source of uh, roots of inflammation. As you were saying, Sean, I think inflammation can come from a lot of places in the body, but I think the gut is one of the, the places that, that I tend to look first from a functional medicine model. And when I'm thinking about inflammation coming from the gut, I'm thinking about 
the immune system, much of which, most of which actually, if we're talking about actual volume and cell numbers, is directly around the gut. So if we look at the gastrointestinal tract, we have the esophagus and the stomach and then the duodenum, the jejunum and the ileum, and then the colon. And around the small intestine and around the colon is lamina propria. And this is the, the cell layer in the inside of the, you know, of the intestine, whether it's the small intestine or the colon. It's only one cell layer thick, and there are these tight junctions between the cells. And right on the other side of that, so is a huge amount of immune cells. You know, we both saw this in histology in medical school and didn't think it was anything important, but it's hugely important. You know, you see this lamina propria. It is just jam-packed full of immunologic cells, and those are dendritic cells. These are mostly innate immune system cells, but there can be some T cells and some B cells. So the majority of our host immune defenses are around the gut. There are other places too. They're in lymph nodes. They're on every surface in our body, but a lot of them are around the gut. And so what's happening here is this is the main, this is where the diplomacy happens. This is the main negotiations in the gut between the outside world and the inside world. And I think sometimes, you know, what you have is the lumen of the gut is where thousands of antigens come in, whether they're plant antigens or meat antigens or toxins or bacteria. There are trillions of bacteria in our guts. We know this and, you know, people vary on the actual amount of numbers of bacteria in our gut, but I think it's reasonable to say that we are outnumbered by the bacteria in our gut. So there are tens of trillions of bacteria in our gut and they are separated from the immune system in our gut by one cell layer. And that's like, that cell layer is so important and those tight junctions between those cells are so important to keep tight. And the theory or the, the evolving understanding is that leaky gut or this opening of the tight junctions that separate thousands, you know, excuse me, trillions of bacteria and hundreds of thousands of food antigens from our immune system is critical. And so things have to pass across that barrier, whether it's food processes, like uh, pieces of food or molecules of food, really, because they get broken down. So molecules, nutrients have to cross that barrier and they can go paracellularly, which is through the tight junction, or they can go transcellularly, where they go across the membrane of the cell into the cell which is the epithelial lining of the gut lumen and then across the other side into the body. And so the tight junctions in the body are 10 to 15 angstroms in, in, uh, in distance, which is pretty small, meaning that most proteins cannot pass those. And that's what our body holds, is that proteins generally don't pass through the tight junctions. They have to be imported and exported through a mechanism. It's kind of like the border between the US and Mexico or the US and Canada or any two countries. There's only the smallest things can get across without going through the border patrol, but everything else has to go through the border patrol. And if it doesn't go through the border patrol, all kinds of antigens can come in and cause problems. You can imagine that if for some reason the border patrol goes away at the border between the U S and Mexico, then all kinds of shady characters can just run across the border. They don't have, it's completely unchecked and military forces on the body side can react to those. So I think that if we're thinking about the gut, as one of the, the drivers of inflammation, we're thinking this is probably going to involve leaky gut. And that's the idea is that these tight junctions are being opened and antigens from food or bacteria are crossing into the lamina propria and the immune system sees them there and goes haywire. And then T cells get activated, B cells get activated, the complement system gets activated, dendritic cells present antigens to T cells and you get this raging immune response because the body is perceiving the antigen as an invader. So this is the immune system doing its job, but it sometimes is reacting to things which are not actually invaders. So, and this is where we get into the idea of 
pathogen-associated molecular patterns, damage-associated molecular patterns, and toll-like receptors. And we don't have to get too technical, but the idea is that molecules in the gut can have epitopes or regions of proteins which look like bacteria, which trigger the immune reaction. And these toll-like receptors on Im immune cells have binding domains which recognize these epitopes. They recognize regions of the proteins and antigens coming across the gut, which trigger these either pathogen-associated molecular pattern recognition uh, defenses or damage-associated. And this is where we get into things like gluten, NSAIDs, things like this. You know, Alessio Fasano at uh, Mass General, he's a pediatric uh, gastroenterologist there, has done a lot of work with gluten and the molecule called zonulin. We can get into zonulin if you guys want to talk about that. But what he's shown, at least with gluten, is that there are epitopes on the gluten molecule and gliadin. Uh, well, gluten is actually two molecules, but there are epitopes on that molecule which seem to mimic uh, ancestral patterns of bacteria and they trigger these patterns in the gut and they cause this immunologic reaction. And so what we think happens, at least according to the zonulin model, is that these, these um, patterns can come in, uh, whether they're plant antigens like lectins, which we can talk about, whether they're gluten, whether they're casein and whey in some people, they can trigger the release of a molecule called zonulin in the gut epithelium, and then the zonulin is released into the gut and the zonulin causes the tight junctions to open. That's sort of the signaling of the zonulin. So when the zonulin is released um, in the gut, then it's saying, all right, open wide. And just as you're saying, Sean, this is probably an evolutionary mechanism to get rid of bacteria. That in our historical um, uh, nature as humans, when we would see bad bacteria, whether it was Campylobacter or Shigella or whatever, we would get leaky gut. This is an evolutionary thing. And that means that the tight junctions open, the immune system goes out, the immune system uh, is allowed to touch the bacteria and the immune system is an immune response is mounted. But what's probably happening now is this leaky gut phenomenon is happening against things which are not bacteria and are things which are, we are exposed to day in and day out with these antigens. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very, uh, you know, enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Remember, to get your discount and free bacon, type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously that's very interesting stuff to talk about. You know, I, again, obviously speculating about that. And it may be the case, you know, as far as the, the, the bacteria. I mean, obviously, we, you know, we've developed a pH of 1.1 to 1.5. I mean, we were dealing with pathogens all along. And, you know, if you look along the, uh, 
you know, the gastrointestinal tract, there's you know, pyre patches and all these other, right. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous area of, of immune function. And it's, it's one of our, we have to remember, people often forget this, our, the lining of our gastrointestinal tract is outside of our body. I mean, uh-huh. it's, 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 that's, that's outside of our body. If we look the way we develop as an, you know, from an embryonic, from a, from a single cell stage, we see this, this sort of, where we involve, envelop ourselves around this tube which is external to our body. So the inside of our stomach is actually external to our actual yeah. body, mm-hmm. which most people don't understand that. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, we've got skin, obviously. And so, and we've got, we've got uh, respiratory mucosa. So these are other also points of points of entry for these things. Although our skin is a little better protected, I think in large cases from, from some of the things, because some people will talk about, you know, things like endocrine disruptors and, th- you know, you put, put all these different lotions on your body and does that have an effect? But I do think the largest effect is probably through the gastrointestinal tract is what we can, what we can actually realistically modify. Now, you could argue that maybe breathing in pollution all the time is having an effect on the lungs, but that's really a hard issue to change. It's hard to change the amount of pollution you're exposed to with that short of moving your house and living up in the mountains and stuff like that. So, but what we can modify is what we eat day to day and certainly uh what we've been eating over the last 100 years is in no way consistent with what we evolved to eat for the most part i mean there's all kinds of novel foods you know we we, we consistently see this with you know other diseases whether it's diabetes or heart disease or whatever you want to name it you know these these sort of perhaps these processed vegetable oils some of the some of the sugar oh, yeah. products the, the processed you know, grains and glutens and gliadins and, and those types of things. So let's talk a little bit about the dietary aspect because, again, it's hard to change the air we breathe realistically. Right. And, 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 and again, I think skin is probably a minor component of this. Maybe maybe I'll be mistaken and find out this more than I think it is. But <laughs> I do think I think the main entry to our body for these these sort of antigens or problems comes from the gut. So what what type of things are you finding that tend to trigger those immune react reactions? Yeah, I completely agree, Sean. I think that we put, you know, we, we can modify processes in our bodies with milligram or microgram quantities of molecules and drugs, and we are putting kilogram quantities of, of food into our bodies. So food is information and food, we are putting orders of magnitude greater amounts of, of molecular signals in our bodies with food, and I think that that is huge. So I think that there are two levels to this that I'll, that I'll, that I'll um, discuss. Um, the first is the, the widely understood things that probably create inflammation in leaky gut. And the second will be the things that are probably just my and perhaps your hypotheses around this that also could create leaky gut. So there's been a lot of research, Alessio Fasano and some other groups with gluten. Um, I think that the, the evidence that gluten causes leaky gut in all individuals, not just those with celiac, is, is pretty strong. I think that there's evidence that dairy molecules, casein and whey can do this in some susceptible individuals. We know that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which are not necessarily a food, but as you described, are you know ubiquitously prescribed, do this as well. And I think there are other things, potentially glyphosate. The, the evidence with glyphosate, I don't think is quite as strong, but it's it's a it's a toxin, it's a pesticide, it's basically Roundup. And there are some groups. Zach Bush has uh, talked a lot about this. Glyphosate may also be causing leaky gut. And then we know, and I think this is where it starts to get into the realm of hypothesis and the cutting edge, that plant lectins probably do this. Um, and, and lectins are the things that I'm, I'm sure you've talked about before on the podcast. Stephen Gundry has popularized this notion, but um, you know, lectins are these carbohydrate binding proteins 
in plants. And, you know, we know that there are some of these that have been shown to cause inflammation in leaky gut. And this is where it starts to get really interesting and the rabbit hole really gets twisty and windy. And we start to really think in terms of big, um, big, um, big concepts here that this gets into the, the applications of something like an elimination diet or a carnivorous diet, which I think are incredible ideas um, that by removing uh, plant antigens, which could potentially be triggering us, we can um, potentially remove some of these triggers to the immune system and um, possibly ameliorate this autoimmunity in the gut. So the, the idea I think uh, that I'm working from is that in some of my patients, what I see clinically is that, you know, I think of it as a continuum. Um, there are more and uh, less triggering foods, but even some of the foods which are less triggering or considered to be healthy can definitely be triggering for some people. And so what I see clinically is that foods like gluten, dairy, soy, egg whites, um, these are big triggers for a lot of people. And those are usually the first offenders to go in terms of foods causing this leaky gut reaction. But beyond that, I think that seeds, and this gets into the idea of lectins and uh, anti-nutrients, phytic acid, oxalic acid, all of these kind of compounds, the seeds have a large uh, contribution to these lectins and can potentially be triggering this in people as well. And by seeds, I need to clarify this because I think this is something that's been misunderstood in the paleo movement. Seeds are grains, seeds, beans, and nuts. Um, you know, for a while I was paleo and in the paleo movement, I think there's a lot of really wonderful thinking in the ancestral community, but I've never understood why seeds and nuts are, are okay and grains and legumes are not, except perhaps that you could make a case that grains and legumes proportions of phytic acid or anti-nutrients. I think legumes probably have some of the highest amounts of these toxic things like phytohemagglutinin and digestive enzyme inhibitors, but even seeds and nuts are not free of lectins, which can be quite triggering for some people. And so this is where we get the evolution of something like an autoimmune paleo diet, which is perhaps the next part of the continuum where you're saying, all right, remove the nightshade vegetables, which are tomatoes, eggplant, goji berries are actually a nightshade. Um, egg, uh, yeah, those are the big ones. Um, uh, peppers are in there too, green peppers, all of the uh, spicy peppers are in there. So they wanna remove the nightshades and then they wanna remove all the seeds and that includes the grains, the beans, the nuts, and the seeds. And so they're trying to pull out more of these triggers and people have response with that. But even at that level, I think people still have response. I was just talking to a client the other day and she was telling me that her two sons have really bad eczema and she is doing everything she can think of from a healthy mother perspective. She's very well informed, she's very smart. She's not giving them any of those foods and they are still having bad eczema. And this is where I think something like a carnivorous diet um, is particularly valuable. I mean, I think a carnivorous diet is pretty amazing in general, but um, I think that it's particularly valuable for these patients that just they, with really bad autoimmune disease that is not responding to anything. And then in that case, I mean, this is the Jordan Peterson story on Joe Rogan, right? You know, his daughter, Michaela Peterson, and, and he both seem to have really sensitive um, phenotypes and they react to things like greens. I mean, Jordan Peterson went from eating meat and greens, so just eating meat and had a significant improvement. And I think his daughter, Michaela, had the same based on what I've heard. So I think that there are people out there, probably myself included, who are really sensitive to things that 99.999% of the population would consider to be healthy, like broccoli or kale. And then we get into this rabbit hole of like, well, what is it in those foods that could be bad for us? So I think that you, I think of it as a spectrum in my patients. And 
if I'm imagining psychiatric diseases autoimmune, then I'm trying to think about how can I simplify the diet as much as possible? How can I really damp down the inflammation in these, in these patients? And how many foods do we need to simplify before they start to feel better? And I think that um, as we've seen on like your website, Meat Heals, I mean, a lot of times when people have recalcitrant anxiety or treatment resistant depression, removing all of the plant foods seems to remove some sort of triggering antigen, whether it's a lectin or oxalates or something, people start to feel a lot better. And I think one of the compelling hypotheses around this is that we're not triggering the immune system anymore. We're not getting this leaky gut. We're not getting this cytokine storm and this triggering of the microglial cells in the brain. So that's kind of the spectrum that I see it on. And it's so fascinating because we're, we're including foods that have been thought of as the healthiest of the healthy, right? You know, we see this on Instagram all the time, eat the rainbow, but it's like, well, <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't be eating the rainbow, you know? Maybe the rainbow is just steak. <laughs> I was going to I was going to ask you that too cuz I think um you know it it seems like even people who are against the carnivore diet or think like it's a scary thing that we may find is very harmful for people, you know, they're at least willing to admit in a lot of cases that it's it is a pretty good elimination diet and whatever it is doing, it's at least getting rid of what was causing some problems. Um, so with like, with that in mind, do you think like, uh, when you're working with someone, I guess, like how, like, would you prefer them just to do that, go on the carnivore diet so you could almost figure things out quicker or are you kind of balancing things out with like this person maybe is going to be a lot less receptive to that. So let's start with just taking out those kind of key big, big five, I think you named with the eggs, dairy, uh, gluten seeds and or, yeah seeds um, yeah yeah, uh, yeah like how, how do you kind of decide how to like coach someone for that is it pretty specific to the person or do you use some of the symptoms to kind of help with that where if it's like a, a mental symptom maybe I'll go this direction if it's a physical ailment maybe I'll go that direction well it kind of decide it depends what they've been doing in the past in this case with the client with the two young boys who have had eczema and they're eating a pretty good diet. They're not eating gluten. They're not, they're, I've already caught all those foods. I think like, yeah, the next step is a carnivorous diet. And in my ideal world at this point, I mean, I, you know, this is so interesting to me and I have to give, you know, props to you and Sean for, for constantly sharing the information about this diet. And, you know, all of the research that I've done suggests that there's nothing dangerous about this diet. In fact, it's incredibly healthy. It's hugely beneficial and there's tons of nutrients. So I would, if we want to, we can talk about this, but I know you guys probably talked about this on the podcast. I think from my perspective as a physician, I don't see any dangers with a carnivorous diet and I would love to get into lipids and stuff if we want to later. But, um, you know, in my ideal world, yes, I would, I agree with you, Zach. I would, I would say to people, let's try a carnivorous diet to start because that I believe is the most efficient way to do it. If we want to fix people or I want to get people to feeling better as quickly as possible, I would go to a carnivorous diet first. And then what I usually tell them because people do have reactions to this. They, they have been raised with um, the idea the vegetables are good or they, they like the vegetables or they make a lot of foods that are incorporating vegetables. They, I, I usually tell them, let's do a carnivorous diet for four to six weeks and then add foods back gradually and see if you respond to them. This is generally what we do with elimination diets mm -hmm. in, in functional medicine is that we'll take food, we'll, we'll eliminate whatever number of foods we're eliminating for four to six weeks and then we'll add foods back one at a time, giving them three or four days and we'll see if people react. And in that way, we can say like, all right, maybe you do tolerate lettuce, but you don't tolerate broccoli. And how would we have known you weren't going to tolerate broccoli? Because 
when we're doing an elimination diet and you still have five foods, the order of magnitude of complexity is much higher. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's so much more complex, but I think with the carnivorous diet, when it's, you know, as we talked about, I think it's safe. There are a few, you know, uh, aspects to it that I think help people be more successful with it, but uh, it just gives them a really simple base to start from. And then they can add things back if they want. I think a lot of people may not end up adding, adding as much back as they think, but um, in general, I think, autoimmunity across uh, the spectrum is, is potentially caused by these triggering antigens. And this gets into the idea of indi biochemical individuality and genetic individuality of people. And we get into some complex concepts of HLAs, which are um, the human leukocyte antigens and MHCs, major hist histocompatibility complexes, and that my genetics are different than your genetics. And we get into polymorphisms and the idea that like the way that my body recognizes things that are foreign is going to be different than every other person's. And We've seen this, you know, there are certain HLA haplotypes like HLA B27, which predispose people to ankylosing spondylitis. And the reason is that, you know, their immune system is going to recognize antigens differently than everyone else's. They're a little more sensitive. We see the same thing with celiac disease and type 1 diabetes. We know for these autoimmune diseases that there is, there are specific uh, HLA haplotypes, MHC uh, phenotypes that determine who is susceptible to these. So, it's so interesting that, you know, one person may be sensitive, maybe super sensitive to almonds and the next person, maybe not, maybe almonds isn't the best idea because they're a seed. And I think that they're probably one of the more immunogenic foods in general, but um, we can use something like, I don't know, like blueberries or citrus is a good example. I mean, some people are really sensitive to citrus and it probably has to do with lectins and their individual biochemical uh, makeup and the way that their cells recognize foreign invaders, their signature. And so something like a carnivorous diet is great because it, it eliminates so many antigens. I think that it's healthy, it's nourishing, it's incredibly nutrient rich, and they can start from there and continue or add things back if they want, and it's a great place to start. Paul, I think you know that that really again is going to be a huge you know part of this this puzzle that we have to solve is why why are there people thriving on a plant based diet, uh, in, ingesting all these you know potentially antigen uh, producing foods. Whereas other people, you know, are, are developing autoimmune disease. And I think that's going to be, you know, and, and, it's, and it's a very complicated, you know, as you talk about the almost infinite varieties of different yeah. immunological responses that different people have, you know, there, there's, so that's going to be a very difficult problem to solve. And so I do think in some cases like this, when you do have an issue, simplicity, simplifying the problem makes it a lot easier to, to go forward and say, let's just, let's just give you a, a carnivorous diet for a few months you know, take out everything possible that might be a problem, you know, and, and you know, but the, granting that there may even be a few people that have issues, you know, with, with meat, but generally that's not going to be the case. Now let's shift gears a little bit because, well, let me, let me, let me, let me make two, two statements. One that you may or may not have noticed, and it, it kind of touches a little bit on psychiatry, maybe perhaps more on addiction medicine, you know, is I do see a number of people that go on a carnivorous diet and then they will say that, my desire to drink alcohol went away. My desire to smoke went away. And so a lot of these people are also finding that they're able to quit these other addictive substances, which I think is interesting. I think it's something that may, may need to be explored later. And then the other thing, again, you, I know you wanted to talk about lipids because you had a background in, in, in the cardiology field is, you know, everyone is terrified about raising their cholesterol. And yet right. we see a lot of neurocognitive problems associated with low cholesterol and even some there's even some data out there showing a propensity for increased violence, suicidality, oh, yeah. uh, and depression in, in people that have low cholesterol. So can you touch on any of those topics? Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. I think that um, just going to your first point, Sean, one of the things that we're seeing widely 
in medicine right now is elemental diets. And elemental diets are being used more and more for autoimmune, uh, autoimmune issues. And elemental diets, uh, if people are not familiar, are basically liquid diets that are very expensive on the order of $100 a day by a company. So they're synthetic diets with you know, no natural ingredients. They're sort of these synthetically created diets, but they're very helpful for people with autoimmune disease. And to me, this is kind of a proof of concept that, that the food antigens are triggering it. So the, the two things that I see is that autoimmune disease often improves with fasting. And you can't fast forever, but people will do a five or a seven day fast. And then if that's sort of the limit of what's reasonable, the autoimmune disease gets better. And then elemental diets help it get better too. And so in my opinion, a carnivorous diet is like, is a million times better than an elemental diet. It's much more healthy. There's many more nutrients. It's less expensive and it's easier to do. You can actually eat meat. And so, you know, I just wanted to note that, that anytime I see that autoimmune diseases are being treated with elemental diets, I think, well, why not just do a carnivorous diet? The patient's going to be much happier and it's probably much better for the patient long-term. Um, if we talk about lipids, I, I will admit that I'm, I'm no longer in cardiology, but it's quite an interest of mine. And I'm not a cardiologist or a lipidologist, but I've, I've, uh, it's something I was interested in a lot when I was in cardiology. And I've taken it upon myself recently to learn quite a lot about this, uh, mainly through Tom Dayspring and Peter Atia and Dave Feldman and people like that. But, you know, this is an interesting thing, Sean. And I, again, I don't want to get too technical for people, but um, I've had a couple of people on Instagram message me and say, oh, these are my lipids. My doctor will freak out. And what I generally encourage people to do as a first step, if they have any concerns about lipids, is, is work with a physician who's willing to get an NMR lipid profile. Because, you know, the, the problem with lipids is that 99% of the time when we go to the doctor and we get a lipid panel, we're going to get an LDLC, which is a calculated LDL. Uh, we're going to get a total cholesterol, we're going to get triglycerides, and we're going to get HDL. And all of those are going to be in milligrams per deciliter, which is a density measure. And the problem with that is that the Framingham data and the majority of the data we have is really poor in terms of predictive outcomes with LDLC, or low-density lipoprotein, which is calculated. You can get a direct LDL, but again, that's in milligrams per deciliter, and it doesn't tell you anything about particle number. But what we will find, and I think most people would agree, I can't speak for anyone, but I think most lipidologists would agree that one of the best predictors of, of risk is LDLP or LDL particle number. And I also think that the LDL particle number needs to be taken in the context of a couple of other things, specifically insulin resistance and inflammation. So now we're back to inflammation. And insulin resistance is, a, is a, another tricky concept to get our heads around, but it has to do with the body's ability to respond to insulin, the sensitivity, sensitivity to insulin. And so if someone is worried about lipids on a carnivorous diet, I, would, I think that the conversation needs to be complete and we need to have all of the measures to look at there to make an intelligent decision about their risk. So I would wanna see LDL particle number, fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1C, uh, fructosamine, adiponectin, fibrinogen, HSCRP, all the inflammatory markers and the markers of insulin sensitivity. Because I think there's a very, very compelling argument that you can make. And this is kind of Dave Feldman's argument, and I know that he was on Peter Atia, and they may not see eye to eye, that there may be different phenotypes out there. I think that there's only a proportion of people whose LDL particle number is going to go up when they increase their saturated fat. And I'm not sure why this happens. I don't think anybody really knows why this happens. But the phenomenon seems to be that when we increase our saturated fat, independent of where it's coming from, whether it's coming from coconut or animal meat, in some small percentage of the population, the LDL particle number goes up. 
And Peter Atiyah discusses this on his podcast. He had a patient in which the LDL particle number went up and he replaced the fat gram per gram with a monounsaturated fat from olive oil and macadamia nuts and the LDL particle went, number went down. So it's an interesting idea that like, there's something about saturated fat that is raising the LDL particle number. Now, I definitely do not think that this means that that's a problem in people who also have low markers of inflammation and who are insulin sensitive. So I think when we complete the picture, we can look at it and say, let's look at this. Your LDL particle number is maybe a little high, maybe it's 1400 or 1500 and the units of this are different. And, um, but you might see a slightly high LDL particle number. But I think in that patient, if I saw a patient like that, and this is just my clinical you know, thinking, and they had low HSCRP, and they had insulin sensitive, which means they had a fasting insulin that was below four or five, and they had a low hemoglobin A1C, and they had a low fibrinogen, and they had no other markers of inflammation. Gosh, maybe I could even measure the IL-6 or TNF-alpha, and they're feeling good, so their mood is good, they're losing weight. Then I think in that patient, you can say, like, look, uh, that is the limits of our understanding of lipids. We do not know, but the whole clinical picture in that perspective generally looks okay to me. And that's what I, that's what people message me on Instagram. They say, I've lost 40 pounds. I feel amazing. My doctor's worried because my LDLC, so now we're back to the other LDL measure, is 168. They want to put me on a stat. And I say, you know, I can't give medical advice, but, you know, if I'm commenting, you know, in a general way, that, that's not concerning to me. We're looking at different things. And I think, as you've noted, Sean, our understanding of LDL is, is not complete. Um, and, and it's a complicated issue there. So, and the other thing that's, that's part of this equation, as you're noting, is that lipid trafficking in the brain is certainly related to Alzheimer's and dementia. And there is this concern, and this gets into some pretty controversial waters. There is a concern that we can lower cholesterol too low in the brain with statins, which inhibit the synthesis of cholesterol by inhibiting HMG-CoA reductase. And that could contribute to an increased incidence of Alzheimer's. The signal is small, but it seems to be there. And in that situation, you sort of have to weigh the pros and the cons with the patient. But I think that there's a tricky thing here in that 98% of the time what I see is people will come to me with just an LDL panel that's been done the quote unquote normal way, and they have no other markers. I don't know their insulin sensitivity. I don't know their inflammation. And those are key pieces. And I also don't know their LDL particle number. And so I want to know all those things. And triglycerides are also a good measure in HDL, maybe. At least triglycerides and DLDL are a good measure of insulin sensitivity. So if a patient did come to me and they had a high LDLP and they were not insulin sensitive and they had high markers of inflammation, I would think like, there's more to this equation. Maybe we need to think about this. But that's at least the way that I think about it, that, that it's a complex equation. And most of the time, people are getting freaked out and their doctors are getting freaked out because they're just seeing a high LDLC, which I think is a problem because I think this diet can be so helpful for people. And I hope that in the carnivore community, we can, we can share this knowledge and, and help primary care physicians and anyone that's going to see a lipid panel and make decisions or advise patients on this feel a little more comfortable with this in terms of cardiovascular risk going forward. Yeah, Paul, I think that's going to be a, an ongoing issue for a number of years because, you know, we have this sort of evolving cohort of people that are, you know, seeing what you're seeing, you know, their, their LDLC goes up or their particle size count goes up a little bit and yet everything else is in, going in a favorable direction. And so we have to say, what is it? What is the preponderance of the data tell us? Am I, if I favorably improve my risk or if I unfavorably improve it? And I don't think it's clear yet. There are people that are staunch believers in cholesterol as a primary driving force, you know, whether you want to count particle count or, oxidized particles or glycated particles or however you want to parse it 
that they're going to say that is the only thing we need to, to focus on. And, and, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily, you know, the best way to, to put all our eggs in one yeah. basket, because we have, again, you know, they're, they're, I think Peter, you even said it, it's necessary, but not sufficient. Right. And I think that's a very key point because, you know, granted, you're not going to form an atherosclerotic plaque without cholesterol. I mean, that's pretty clear. You know, and I, and I, I put this out with, when we had Joel Conn the other day, I said, you know, c- calcium's in there too, but we're not running around trying to dramatically lower everyone's blood calcium levels. Uh, you know, that would be disastrous, obviously. So I, I think there's, uh, you know, a lot of room to understand. But I think, you know, from a, from a low-carb or ketogenic or carnivorous or whatever community, you know, we have to sort of get some data on this, this special cohort of people and see what's going. And that may take a decade or more to, to get right. that information. I think, again... Uh, to, to utilize some of the advice that, that Dr. Khan, you know, who's a vegan, who obviously I disagree with his dietary philosophy, but there is some, I think, good data from there as a cardiologist. He says, well, just, you know, at the very minimum, find out what's going on with your, your vessels. You know, you can get one of these coronary artery calcium scans. Now, I mean, obviously it doesn't do any good to do that when you're 20 years of age. I mean, you know, it's going to be something you're going to see in middle ages or even later, but at some point there's probably going to be other tests out there that we can look at that are more, you know, reliable and more predictive. And maybe there'll be blood markers, but more likely I think they're going to be measures of actual tissue level uh, pathology. And I think hopefully as technology improves with imaging, with, you know, uh, you know, this is something that I think is underrated that I've looked at a few years ago uh, around things like advanced glycation end products. I mean, there are autofluorescent skin readers where you can get a look at, you know, you can just look at your skin and it can tell you generally how much advanced glycation end products you have in your body which is very predictive for, you know, renal disease, uh, you know, some of these diabetic complications. And so I think there's, there's a lot more that we need to, to do in this area besides just keep continually doing the same thing over and over and, and probably perhaps doing a disservice to a great deal of population because this great. sort of relentless pursuit of lowering every, everybody's cholesterol may or may not have been a good thing, depending on, on your perspective. And so I think that's uh I think it's wise to continue just to, 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 to ask questions about this. I totally agree, Sean. I think that the point you bring up is a really good one. Uh, and I, I can comment on that based on my understanding. So one of the interesting things that we used to look at a lot that we don't care about so much is LDL particle size. And, you know, um, so the, the space between the endothelial cells is quite large. I think they say it's like 70 nanometers. And LDL particles range in size from 20 to 24 nanometers or something. And so... LDL particles can move freely between the blood va- between the, the inside of a blood vessel lumen and the subendothelial intimal space. But what happens, and, and Peter Atia notes this, is that as you're saying, it's necessary but not sufficient. They can move back and forth. But what has to happen, I think, as we understand it now, is there has to be the second element. And the second element is inflammation. That LDL particle, when it moves into the subendothelial space, has to become oxidized. And then once it becomes oxidized, the scavenger receptors on the macrophages, so again, we're back to an immune process, in the subendothelial space, see the oxidized LDL as a bacterial, or I shouldn't say bacterial, as a foreign particle, and they take it up. So I think this is, this is the current understanding of atherosclerosis, is that based on the just, just a pure um, osmotic, or not necessarily osmotic, but a pure gradient level, the concern with LDL is that if you have a higher number of particles, more of them are gonna pass into the subendothelial space. This may be true, but I think that the inciting event happens in the subendothelial space, and that inciting event is inflammation. Something happens to that LDL particle, namely, it becomes oxidized, 
which is something else we didn't talk about, but we can define. Oxidation is this chemistry term that has to do with um, the, the loss of electrons. So in chemistry, in general chemistry, anyone who's been there may remember the mnemonic Leo the lion says Gur. So loss of electrons is oxidation, gain of electrons is a reduction. And so when we hear about something becoming oxidized, whether it's oxidized LDL or uh, lipid peroxides, this involves the transfer of electrons. And so something is happening at a reduction oxidation level and the LDL particles becoming oxidized in the subendothelial space. So we need inflammation in the subendothelial space to create oxidation of the LDL particles. And this is exactly what you're saying, Sean, this necessary but not sufficient. And so this gets back to the idea of inflammation. Where is this inflammation in the subendothelial space coming from? And I think there's a very compelling hypothesis which holds a significant amount of water that, you know, sure the LDL particle number may be important, but just as important is the fact that there is inflammation in the subendothelial space and we should figure out where that inflammation is coming from. Why is the subendothelial space having inflammation? And why are those macrophages in the subendothelial space, you know, being triggered and um, because there's seeing this oxidized LDL. So when we're recording oxidized LDL, or we're assaying that we're looking at particles of LDL that have actually been in the subendothelial space, been oxidized there and gone back out into the periphery. From everything I understand, LDL particles cannot be oxidized in the blood vessel, in the circulation. And then I think you're right, Sean, some markers of vascular health will be important in the future. There are quite a few sophisticated markers we can do now that can help us look at this. There's things like asymmetric dimethylarginine, symmetric dimethylarginine, uh, LPPLA2, myeloperoxidase. They're just surrogate measures. But I think when we take them all together, we can get a pretty good sense of somebody's vascular health. There's calcium artery, there's coronary artery calcium scanning as well. But I think, yeah, eventually we just need to be able to look. We need a good biomarker to correlate all this and have it all make sense because there's more to this equation. And I agree with you. I think that the, the my biggest fear, <clears throat> which may be shared by you guys, and I think it is, is that that this diet will be dismissed because it raises LDL slightly in some people. And that level of LDL has been held so sacrosanct incorrectly for so long because of a misunderstanding of the process of atherosclerosis, people will discount a way of eating that's potentially very beneficial for a large amount of people as we've seen. And as we're seeing with, with you know, meat heals and, and your work that, that a lot of people with recalcitrant autoimmune diseases and psychiatric diseases are getting a lot better. You know? And so this is something that I think is, it's too important to ignore. Quick question with that too. Do we know like, um, to, I'm just trying to look at it from a reverse angle where if we're looking at, so if we're, if we're making an argument that high LDL um, with low inflammation uh, is, is, not a, is not a bad thing, do we have any, like, any a knowledge of what it looks like kind of on the opposite end? Are there like enough people documented that would have high levels of inflammation but in range cholesterol or LDL? that are like not doing so hot where we could kind of look at it as, okay, so here's a scenario where um, you're getting the same result with something else being high and the, the cholesterol being in range. Yeah. I think, I think you could, I think you could make a case for that. You'd have to look at, you know, sort of individual anecdotes and individual patient cases, but there are populations. Um, <clears throat> you'll see this, that, that there are plenty of populations in whom inflammation is quite high and the LDL is not particularly high and they have very aggressive vascular disease. So we definitely can see that as well. So LDL particle number is clearly a factor. Um, it's just, it's like, like we're saying, it's not the only factor in this, this complicated equation. So to get hyper-focused on LDL is a real problem. Uh, one other question too, do you think like some of the, the lipidologists who are um, really still backing all the, whole, the cholesterol stuff 
if there was enough like CAC scores and people with like this, I guess this cohort that we have with the high LDL who are seemingly um, improving their health, if they got enough studies showing like, I guess you'd probably want like, this is probably where it comes in where it'd take a decade to do because you'd want to test someone in their middle age and then test them again 10 years later. Right. Like, is that what we need to kind of disprove this is like, okay, here we have a group of individuals in their high 40s, early 50s. They're like a CAC score of really low, maybe even zero. And then 10 years later, it's still zero, even though their LDL has been high the whole time. You know, I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, in, in clinical cardiology, I think the data with coronary artery calcium scoring is limited. And in lipidology communities, coronary artery calcium scoring is something that's unfortunately not well um, respected or doesn't, it's not felt to be quite prognostic as we wish it were. I think that we like it um, because it helps us visualize the arteries. Part of the problem with coronary artery calcium scoring is that not all plaque is calcified. And in fact, a lot of plaque is not calcified. And so you can have what's called soft plaque and soft plaque can rupture just as easily as calcified plaque. So coronary artery calcium scoring is probably an important data point, but I fear that uh, within the lipidology community, it's not, um, and, and, and they, they, I'm sure, have reasons for this, but it's not felt to be the best prognostic indicator. I think what we will need is, you know, probably years of data, uh, which is unfortunate, unless we can think of another scenario to kind of show, or this collection of data to show like, hey, you know, um, here's a guy with a high LDLP and no other markers of inflammation, and he's totally insulin sensitive, and he's been on this diet for five years or 10 years. This is the problem with atherosclerosis, right? This is a, this is a long disease. You're going to get a long time to see this progress. You couldn't just say a year and have anyone really uh, give a whole lot of credence to it, and he's not developed atherosclerosis. So I think we're going to need better markers, and it's going to be an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, one of the things that, that could potentially be interesting to show is a regression in plaque. So mm. I could imagine a scenario in which you could have someone with a coronary artery calcium score, which is elevated, uh, and this is just a hypothesis, and they go on a carnivorous diet, and then to show the coronary artery calcium score decrease, that would be an interesting finding, right? Or the other thing that gets used a lot is carotid intimal medial thickness, and again, this is not felt to be a great measure or very prognostic, but you can visualize the artery. And so perhaps we could show regression of plaque or non-progression of plaque in these people. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a complex conversation. It's probably going to be a conversation that's at the heart of this issue for many years to come. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, uh, we'll have to keep thinking about how to really do the studies. I mean, I think that, you know, well, it's just that the time frame and the development of these things is so long, you know, maybe we could develop an animal model or something. Yeah. Is there, is there anything being done to try to find a scenario or a situ or a, a process, I guess, in order to get a respected look where a lot of these kind of groups that are somewhat disagreeing or completely disagreeing are, would be like, Oh yeah, that's a perfect identifier right there. If you're, if you're that, then great, keep doing what you're doing. Or is that something that is just kind of so far down the road that we haven't really gotten there yet? I, I'm not aware of anything that's there yet. You know, I think Dave Feldman is doing some awesome work um, and, and trying to do, I mean, the guy's done like over a hundred lipid panels on yeah. himself. <laughs> and he's, you know, he's showing that the LDL, according to his theory, is you know, more based on energy and triglyceride trafficking and that it's quite malleable. But, um, you know, I think he's, you know, he's, he's a really relevant part of the conversation, but I think that ultimately, you know, most cardiologists are going to be pretty worried. And I think if we can just at least, I think the first step would be shifting the conversation 
to include LDLP, to include other markers of inflammation. And I think that ultimately probably what we'll need to do is get a better look, some way to assay what's going on in the, the subendothelial space, whether that's a really good assay for oxidized LDL or some assay for foam cells or some assay to really see what's happening and show, you know, if you could show that this person has an elevated LDLP, quote unquote, or a, a, level, of, a, level, a level of LDLP that's higher than what we would imagine to be ideal, but they're not accumulating plaque in the subendothelial space or they're not even getting foam cells in the macrophages, that would be interesting. I'm not sure if there's a way to measure foam cells, but if we could look at that, that would be quite interesting. But as we were, as you know, as I was talking about a moment ago, there are a lot of measures of vascular health now. I mean, there are a lot of blood measures of the stuff that we can look at beyond um, what we're doing now. And just that regular lipid panel is so limited. I think a lot of it has to do with inflammation, which is why I was so intrigued when I got my recent blood results back too. Yeah, I think just, just there's a lot of things to comment on. I'm going to put a couple of comments in there. And so Zach, just to answer your question about people with low LDL cholesterol and high vascular disease uh, having problems. Yeah, I mean, there is, you know, people like people that have like lupus, you know, they have vascular uh, vasculopathy or inflammation and they have very high levels of, of cardiac disease, regardless of LDL levels. I mean, there's some of the FH population, the familial hypercholesterolemia. We've seen some state data on that with long-term data showing that many of those people going long periods of time with high levels of LDL cholesterol, not having higher levels of cardiovascular disease, depending. And again, FH has got a lot of different variations. There's a lot of people that, a lot of different genetic, uh, you know, genotypes that, that, that lead to that sort of situation. So that's very interesting. I think cardiac uh, CT angiography is probably, yeah. uh, of course, that's invasive. You know, no one wants to, no one wants to contrast dye and all that stuff. And so there's, there are things you can do uh, that are painful and expensive and not very fun for the patients that, that make it harder to, to extrapolate to the general population to look at some of these things. But I think uh, over time, you know, we'll get that data. But I do think, yeah, it's going to probably take 10 years of people saying, I'd rather feel good and live with yes. high cholesterol uh, and take my chances. And, 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 I, and I do feel uh, certainly all things being equal, you could probably still make the argument that increased LDL particle count is, is going to increase your risk for disease. But again, all things are never always equal. And so by raising my LDL particle count, uh, by going on a low, low carbohydrate or a carnivorous diet, I may have improved other markers significantly. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a, there's a balance back and forth. And if I wanted to push my LDL particle count back down by changing my diet, it may cause my markers of inflammation to go up. And so you've got this, right. where does it end up and where does your risk factor end up being? And so I think we have to figure out what our own, you know, it's like, like investing in the stock market. You got to say what's your what's your comfort for level of risk, <laughs> and you know, and you know, and again, I always say I think the best marker for future health is current health, and I, I think that holds up. You know, with almost any 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 disease process you talk about, if you've had back pain in the past, you're more likely to have back pain in the future. And I think, you know, again, it's just I know I keep beating the same drum, or you know, it's like beating this dead horse. It's saying, you know, take care of your health today get as healthy as you can today with all the objective and subjective measurements you can and then and, and keep riding that as long as you can. And if, change, if things change, evidence change, changes as you go on, then, then make those changes. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting and, and hopefully the understanding in lipids will, will advance this idea, but I think this is really the cutting edge of lipidology is we don't fully understand why saturated fat raises LDL particle count. Because it's interesting to me that you can replace saturated fat gram for gram with monounsaturated fat and see the LDL particle count go down. And this is, this is a, a poorly understood portion of this that I think has been 
a problem for many patients for a long time is that we know in lipidology that if you give someone a hell of a lot of polyunsaturated fat, their LDLC will go down. But that is because so many of those LDL particles are becoming oxidized and then cleared from circulation. And when we do that, we see much worse cardiac outcomes. So this idea that we're just hyper-focused on LDL is really, really a bad indicator. And so the same could be true with saturated fat. I mean, there may be some mechanism. I've heard they think, you know, perhaps the saturated fat is creating ketones and the ketones are getting created into cholesterol and that's creating more LDLP. But I don't think we fully know that that's atherogenic. And, and the idea that when you replace it with monounsaturated fat, you are replacing it with a fat that is more vulnerable to oxidation. So this is an interesting thing. You know, I don't, I don't see monounsaturated fat as quote unquote healthier than saturated fat. And as Sean, I'm sure you've talked about with Joel Kahn and, you know, Chris Kresser and Joel Kahn talked about on the Joe Rogan podcast, this demonization of saturated fat is just, it's just poorly founded. There's saturated fat is not an unhealthy fat. Um, that's been shown time and time again. I think there's a lot of evidence for that. The studies that have suggested otherwise were poorly done or looking at trans fat from vegetables. It's quite confusing. But the idea that you can replace saturated fat gram for gram with monounsaturated fat to get a drop in LDL suggests to me, you know, I just can't, it just make, doesn't make sense to me. You know, there's something going on with saturated fat that's raising LDL people. We just cannot say that that is atherogenic. And I think in my experience and in the experience of my patients, what we see is the reverse. We see the inflammatory markers go in the opposite direction, which is really cool. You know, um, in my own personal experimentation. I, I've been doing the carnivorous diet for about 50 days now, and my HSCRP went as low as I've ever seen it. I am eating so much saturated fat right now. My HSCRP was 0.3. When I was doing a paleo diet, it was 1.1. I mean, and, you know, people would say an HSCRP of 1.1 is not a big deal, but that's not normal. I mean, that's, there's something smoldering there. My sed rate was low. Most of my other labs were totally normal. And so it was completely interesting to me that like, this, uh, the people that I've seen, I only have a few patients on carnivorous diets, but what I've seen is that when they do this, their HSCRP goes to the lowest level I've ever seen it. Almost invariably, they go to 0.3 or 0.4, which is rock bottom. That is really low. And HSCRP, C-reactive protein is a non-specific acute phase reactant, but if there's inflammation somewhere in the body, it's going to go up. And so the difference between 1 and 0.3 is significant. And I was really, I was really moved by that for myself and for my patients thinking like, wow, like, this is really lower inflammation. I don't know if you've seen that, Sean or Zach, but uh, it's an interesting idea. Yeah, I see that. I saw that personally. My my HCRP uh, was uh, 0.6 the one time I checked it, but uh, and that was with hard training too, and I was exercising very hard right. at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I see that all the time. I mean, I've seen literally almost thousands of labs at this point of people, and almost invariably we see these inflammatory markers uh, in general plummet, which I right. think goes very in because there's a sort of belief out there and, and sometimes uh, put out by some, some of the vegan proponents of meat is very inflammatory. And I'm seeing quite honestly the exact opposite. And totally. I think it's something that, uh, you know, we need to continue to, to, to explore and hopefully, you know, hopefully the formalized studies will come out of this in, in the near future. It's something that I want to try to help make happen and hopefully more like-minded researchers and physicians are willing to put their sort of previous preconceptions aside and say, Hey, let's test this stuff out. I mean, we are, we are, we are seriously at the hypothesis generating stage. It's just as good as any epidemiologic study. I mean, it's hypothesis generate generating, which is, is we found out is about 80% of all our nutritional knowledge is, is epidemiology, which only serves to generate hypothesis. Right. And so these anecdotes, you know, now that now that we have hundreds and thousands of them, I, I, I think it's, 
a valid hypothesis and it can be tested and hopefully we'll do that. It starts to be such a strong case that it can't be ignored. And I, one of the things that I think is interesting about this type of diet is it's so iconoclastic, you know, it really goes against these ideas of what is conceived of as healthy and the healthiest foods. And so, you know, it's, it's so interesting that, that all of these preconceived notions really need to be sort of put to the side and as best we can considered without bias and say, well, maybe look at what's happening here. We're getting patients that are recalcitrant with depression, with rheumatoid arthritis, with diseases that are considered to be incurable and they're getting better on this diet, which, you know, some people would say is the worst diet you could ever have, you know, and it's crazy. And the mm-hmm. inflammatory markers are going way down. So this is clearly, this is too incredible to, to ignore. And there's something really cool going on. And you mentioned this earlier, Sean, I think it's interesting to note that, you know, some people thrive on a vegan diet and if, if they do, then that's awesome. I'm never going to tell anyone that they can't eat a certain way if they feel awesome on that diet. I just think that, uh, you know, I had personal experience with veganism and a lot of people have had experience with that in the past and they've maybe felt good for a little while with removing of some offending foods, but then they kind of, I kind of tank and other people kind of tank, but ultimately it's just about quality of life for patients. And, you know, if, if, if this is an, uh, this is, this certainly is a useful intervention for some set of patients, perhaps a very large subset of patients that, that can't be ignored. And I mean, it's just, it's really earth shattering when, uh, you know, foods that have long been considered to be super healthy are perhaps causing us autoimmunity and inflammation and, you know, it kind of ties it all together. Where is this inflammation coming from? Well, maybe it's coming from these lectins, these antigens in the gut, triggering the immunity there, leading to cytokines, leading to microglial cell activation in the brain or, you know, immunologic activation against other things in the body, whether it's MS or hypothyroid or rheumatoid, you know, this could all be connected here. It's a really quite an interesting um, schema. Paul, I'll tell you, this has been a great discussion. And we've been, uh, we, before we, uh, I mean, we could go on for another six hours, I think. So maybe we'll have to do part two, but <laughs> tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about what you got coming up. I know you're going to, I know you're talking about opening a practice down in San Diego here in the coming, uh, I think, very soon and yep. just let yep. us know where, where people can find you a little bit about your future and yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that would be great yeah so i am uh, i'm going to be moving to san diego in june of next year i'm going to be opening a private uh, functional medicine and psychiatry practice so i'll be specializing and seeing patients with depression anxiety obsessive compulsive bipolar uh, i'll see kids with adhd and adults with dementia as well and you know, what I, what I really want to be able to do for people is treat the root cause of the illness. You know, I'm, I'm a, like I said, I'm a Western trained physician that can prescribe meds when they're needed. But, you know, most of the time, I think we, if we can get to the root of the problem, we're not going to need the medications or we can even get off the medications and people get better quality of life outcomes long term. So that's my, that's my vision for the future. I'll be doing functional medicine and psychiatry in San, San Diego and I am. Uh, I have a website. It's paulsaladinomd.com. So my last name is like salad and dinosaur. Uh, so it's S A L A D I N O. So paulsaladinomd.com. I'm on Instagram. My handle there is paulsaladinomd, and I've recently started a YouTube channel, which is paulsaladinomd. So people can find me any one of those places. You know, um, I do. Uh, I do consults here in Seattle. I've got a private practice here in Seattle. I do consults here and consults via Skype if people are interested. And if people send me messages on Instagram, I'm usually happy to try and give, you know, as much advice as I can. Um, if it's not uh, too complex a question, I'm happy to provide as much sort of free advice as possible. But sometimes in the more complicated stuff, it's better to have a consult. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. <laughs> awesome, Paul. Well, we'll, we'll put all those links in the show notes, too, so people can click through to them. 
and have no problem finding you. But thanks again for coming on. This was an awesome episode. And like Sean said, we're, we're going to have to do a part two eventually. Yeah, I'd love to, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. So um, I've got a bunch of labs on myself kind of in the works. Like I said, I did some inflammatory markers, which looked really good. And I've got um, an NMR lipid profile on myself that I should have back soon. I'm going to get some gut flora testing and some micronutrient testing so we can dispel the myths further around the fact that a carnivorous diet is going to kill all your gut flora. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much, guys. It's been great talking to you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.